Alright, welcome to Before the Pitch, baseball podcast covering all news, information, youth education, the one and only best baseball podcast for kids, parents, where we discuss America's favorite pastime with an educational value so parents and kids can both enjoy the bond that brought this game for all of us together. We are your hosts of Before the Pitch, uh, where you can love New York baseball no matter what shade of blue you're wearing. I'm Billy the Mets fan. And I am Scott the Yankee fan. Make sure you guys all follow us on our YouTube channel and our Twitter at B4Pitch, where we talk the Mets and the Yankees all day, and we always respond to your comments because we know ESPN and major sports networks definitely won't talk about it. We do it for them. We are now partnered with our new co-host. Uh, this is Coach Chris. Hey, Coach Chris. Been uh, doing this a long time. Coach Scott for uh, about three months in his uh, high school season there. But uh, excited to be here, guys. Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's wonderful to always have a new voice in the room and uh, just get a different perspective on everything, especially from someone who uh, enjoys working with the today's youth players and really uh, just teaching them what it's all about and how uh, the game should and uh, will continue to be played in the future. Yeah, and all of us here are actually educators in some capacity, which is a really cool thing that we all really share this um, thing trauma that we know how to communicate with kids. We like to communicate with kids. We like to educate kids. Um, and, and it's going to be great for all of us to really discuss that in the game that we, we all love so, so much. Um, and we're really looking forward to that whole thing. Absolutely. And the biggest thing is is always taking something that we love and the kids obviously love to take part in it and using that to teach life lessons. So this should, uh, should be really good for everyone. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, and we'll see where this all takes all of us. But for now, let's get started. Uh, we're going to get into some Mets news, some Yankees news, and then we're going to be talking uh, general MLB stuff that's been going on over the past week or so, um, now that spring training's really in full swing. So we're going to get started with some Mets news. Um, so there's a couple things I wanted to talk about. It's... Uh, so the Mets had a couple injury scares this week, um, nothing super major. Um, a lot of it's just like rehabbing players, you know. We got Cano coming back this year, trying to have a bounce back year. We got Cespedes coming back, trying to figure out what he can give us, if really anything. I know it's kind of, uh, we haven't seen him play in about, what, a year and a half at this point? So uh, no one really knows what we're getting out of him right now. And, uh, but I want to start with Cano. Um, I personally feel like he's has a, uh, he's going to have a big bounce back year because there was a, uh, there was an article I read recently where it did, broke down his exit velocity and, uh, uh, for the past year. And he was still up in the, uh, 82nd percentile of major league players in exit velocity. That's still significantly higher than a majority of the MLB. And, I don't know. He is a guy that always puts bat on ball and always is putting the ball in play. And I just, I don't give up on those guys easily. Uh, did we just say Cano or Cespedes? I had a glitch out for a second. Uh, it was Cano what we were talking about there. I got you. I got you. Um, I notice how, how you bring up a few injury scares. And for our listeners, that's going to be the common theme going on today um, for the bulk of the discussion. What we really hope everyone's going to get out of this episode is um, some knowledge about injuries and most importantly how to prevent your kids from getting them and we really hope that everyone leaves with some more information on that that we can make the game safer and you can make it safer um for your kids now robinson cano a dude who i used to love and now hate him um since he abruptly i shouldn't say abruptly left the yankees i do not like the way he parted with, with the yankees um 
that's a discussion for another time now. Um, what I value him as a hitter so much, though, is exactly what you said. He always puts the bat on the ball. He has such a nice, smooth swing, and it's important to have that kind of swing that he has because he, it, it's so it's so level, and he spends so much surface area through the zone. I say surface area and not time. If I say you're spending time in the zone, to me, I, I think that comes across that it's going too slow. So I like to say almost surface area. Um, of the, the barrel going through the zone. And that's important because he could hit the ball uh, um, uh, a little bit early, a little bit late, or wherever. And that's really where um, the beauty of his swing comes from, the ability to hit the ball anywhere at any point in, in the strike zone, whether it's in front or exactly where it should be or a little bit behind him. I think the biggest thing is, is if he can stay healthy. I mean, I'm just I'm looking at some stats from last year. Obviously, last year was a lost year for him because he was hurt. But like his expected batting average, his XBA was 268 when his actual batting average was 226. Mm-hmm. So that just that just tells me that he had a little bit of bad luck on his side more than anything else. I mean, 268 for an expected batting average still isn't great by his standards. But I think he's going to have a little bit of a back bounce back year. You know, his K's per strikeout percentage was a little bit higher last year than it has been in his career. But you can attribute that to being injured. I mean, that's whatever ailments you have, that's going to slow you down, whether it be lower half, top half, whatever it is. So if he can stay healthy, I think he'll have a bounce back year. Is he going to be the Cano of old where he hit 346 for the Yankees? No. I mean, he's he's older now. But I think that, you know, a bounce back year where he could be solid in the two, three, or four hole for the for the Mets is can be expected. Now, keep in mind, with, with him playing at City Field, he's going to have to take a different approach uh, to the hitting than, than he does at Yankee Stadium where he did at Safeco because there's so much outfield space. Um, and here's a big difference between the biggest difference between City Field and Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium, you could bank on the cheap home run. You're not getting the cheap home run at City Field, um, which is good. If, if you're a hitter, that's not even a bad thing. Because at City Field, there's so much area out there, and the outfield can't cover all of it. And if there's more front to cover, there's more space for the hitter to spread the ball around. So I'm Cano. My strategy is in the gaps. It's not to get under it and launch it like you do at Yankee Stadium. Your strategy at City Field is get them in the gaps and get it past them. Let the ball keep rolling. And that's how you can get some extra bases and hopefully get your runners a couple more steps um, to get them over an extra base. For sure. Uh, I mean, City Field does play a lot differently than Yankee Stadium. Uh, you can't just build left-handed power and hope for the best at City Field. And that's not a knock on Yankee Stadium. Like, Yankee Stadium's iconic, and it has, like, its own quirks to it, especially um, out in center field, for sure. It's a little bit deeper than quite a few parks in center field, but it's that short right porch that uh, gets me every time. It's a little tricky, and I kind of... It, it cheapens a little bit, but at the same time, it's nothing. It's no. It's part of the charm. It's part of the charm. And and Yankee Stadium, even though it does have that short porch, is not like it's not as small as some things like Camden Yards or even Citizen Bank Park. Like those those things are so small, even compared to Yankee Stadium. So we talk about the short left, uh, short right porch, but it's not something that I really take into account all too much with the Yankees. Um, and, but... and really, really quick before we move on, why are talk about that? A lot of people, because we think of Yankee Stadium as the short porch, we forget left center field at Yankee Stadium is freaking deep. We tend to forget how tricky that that left field is to play. I think it was um, Mike Francesa or is either him or Michael K. I can't remember which one. Um, said it, a left fielder, a good left fielder, is very valuable for the Yankees because that's a lot of ground after cover, and we tend to forget about it. Oh, for sure. Um, anything to add to that, Chris? No. I mean, as far as the ballparks go, I, I think Cano just needs to focus 
a little bit more middle away at the plate. That's mm-hmm. probably going to help him a little bit because now you're going to start to work gap to gap as opposed to the pull like you guys were talking about where he was pull happy earlier in his career. Um, but he's got such a quick swing that's easy. That's an easy fix, um, and he's one of the best to do it. Like I said, if he can just stay healthy, so. For sure, and and if you look at uh, what he did all throughout last spring, um, he was like exclusively going uh, opposite way for most of his at bats during spring last year. So it was something that you could tell that he was consciously trying to do, um, and only with more time and work at it and less injury time, he's gonna just. I think he's gonna produce again. That's really all it comes down to. But for the so Mets. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was, I was going to say, so I want, I want to hear a little bit of your thoughts on the bullpen. You know, they signed Batances this year. It's a big signing for them. What do you uh, what do you think about that Mets bullpen? So I think the Mets bullpen, A, can't be any worse than it was last year. <laughs> um, so so that's a good thing, right? Um, but I think there's a lot of upside to the Mets bullpen. Um, I do think that it should, in theory, be one of the strengths of the team. Obviously... We thought that last year, and it didn't come through. But, you know, you have Batanzas back there. You have Diaz back there. Um, and even even Familia. I know, I know he had a rough year, and I know Diaz had a rough year. But these are guys that only the season before were considered top relievers in the game. And that talent doesn't just disappear overnight. I know relievers are finicky from year to year, but... You partner that with like some experienced arms like Brad Brock and Seth Lugo um, and Justin Wilson. You know th- these are professional pitchers. They're not they're not just random names thrown in a bullpen. And I do think that it could be a strength to the team. Now I got a question for both of you, and it's going to revolve around Diaz. Um, when that trade was made, the two acquired Diaz and Cano. Uh, Billy, you and I both agreed that, that that was a good decision even though you were taking on um, a, l- a little bit extra money with that we yeah. agreed the um, it was it was going to be worth it and it was a calculated risk um, and even at the conclusion of last year we said while it didn't work out the way we were expecting the first year we still contested that at the time because 2020 hindsight's 2020 uh, as we all know at the time we, we still defend confusing this year yeah and, and so, so then <laughs> hindsight is 2019 ladies and gentlemen um we still contested that even though it didn't work out for that that first year um it was still a good decision to have been made at the time so then my question is diaz just got lit up like a christmas tree the other day obviously it's spring training you can Mm -hmm. only take it with a grain of salt um but like like garrett cole said it correctly the games don't count but they definitely matter yes the question for both of you becomes at what point does it become a bad idea and what does Diaz have to do at minimum in order for it to have been worth it, at least for this year? Uh, in my opinion, Diaz needs to be a top-tier reliever. Um, it, that's what he was traded for. You know, that's the value that the Mets gave up to get him back. Um, but you got to remember, Diaz wasn't just about. It wasn't. You weren't trading for a one-year like contract of a superstar you were trading for a young pitcher with long control um so say the Mets don't even win this year but say say in the next two years Diaz is still on the team and they do 
end up winning a championship. Well, then I will say that it's worth the trade. Like, regardless of what Jared Kelnick becomes, like, he could become a superstar over in Seattle. But you know what? If this trade ends up resulting in a Mets World Series, then it's worth it. And and right now, it doesn't look like it's going to pay off in that matter. But we don't know the full script yet. And it's hard to judge trades until you know the full script. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, he still had 26 saves last year. He had a terrible ERA. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of injuries to that front end of the rotation. And when you're losing starters, that bullpen gets taxed a little bit more. So it's putting him in a position as a closer that maybe he had a hard time handling. I think if you stay away from the injuries with the rotation, you get some offense going. You know, the year before, in 2018, he had 57 saves for Seattle. Mm -hmm. On a bad Seattle team, he had 57 saves. So – if you can keep guys from getting on the IL in the starting rotation, that's only going to help your bullpen. Um, I think adding Batantis in front of him is going to be huge for him because it takes a lot of pressure off of him. Probably and again, he he's, only 25, he's only 25 years old. Mm-hmm. He doesn't turn 26 until the middle of March. I mean, this is a young guy. So I, I don't think in any way the Mets should be looking at this as could it even possibly be a loss. I think if he goes out there and he saves 25 to 30 games again this year, I think that's still a win for them on that trade. Um even if he's not a superstar, just because he's so young, you still have opportunities for him to continue to grow, even if it's not this year. Exactly. It's it, And that's the thing. I, when that trade was made, it was made for the long haul. It wasn't made just in the moment. And the, and the funny part of that is, is Cano was kind of the throw-in on that trade, right? And we're talking about how he's going to have a bounce-back year this year because he finally seems healthy. Mm-hmm. And he was the throw-in just because the Mets needed to take him for the salary dump that Seattle wanted to get rid of. Yeah, that's so, really what Seattle wanted. I don't. Seattle didn't want to give up Diaz, but they knew they had to get rid of Cano's contract. You know, another part of this is 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 the whole Stephen Matz thing. I mean, he's projected to be a starter, but last year they talked about using him in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. They um, did for a few games. Yeah, and and so how does that play into the mix? If you have a significant amount of healthy starters, does Matz get moved to the pen? Does that help the pen? I mean. I, you would know the Mets rotation better than I would, Billy. I mean, but, you know, is that something that could kind of happen down the road as well? Uh, absolutely, it's something that could happen. Um, there's there's basically an open competition between Rick Porcello, Michael Waka, and Steven Matz for the last two starter spots in the Mets rotation. You know, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, that's a lock. You know, barring, barring an injury, that's a lock for the season. Yeah. But... You know, Porcello, Waka, Mats, like, they all have their ups and downs. So it's a matter of who outperforms who going into the season that I think is going to be in that rotation. I think Mats has an edge just because he's the lefty in there. Yeah. But, you know, Porcello's looking for a bounce back year. Um, it seems like he fluctuates from year to year a lot Waka is incredibly talented but the guy has really never stayed healthy for a full season um so honestly I feel like Waka is more of the guy that might get pushed towards the bullpen to maybe try and limit the number of innings he's throwing but yet again that's something he's never done so put it this way one of those guys is going to end up in the bullpen before the beginning of the year were any of those guys given um, minor league contracts with big league invites to camp, or were they all signed to major league contracts? They're all signed on major league contracts. 
All right, so so one of those three is going to end up in the pen. Yeah. And, you know, wh- whoever it is out of those three, I'm sure it's going to help the bullpen because now you got a guy with some length in there. Yeah, um, you have so a couple you, guys with length for sure because you still have Seth Lugo who can go multiple innings, and uh, they have a few other guys who are more like fringe bullpen guys who can go length, like Robert Gazelman as well. Yeah, uh, can we talk about Porcello just super quick while yeah. this came up? Here's the thing: uh, if you're, I was, I thought that was a very good acquisition for the Mets because a lot of people don't don't realize Porcello actually has a, a career longer than most people think, and it's a career of some pretty sustainable, um, solid re- reliability, and he's really not far removed um, from his Cy Young year. So it's really, it really might not take much uh, for him to re- really to to be. Um, to be worth every dollar you spend on him. Um, I actually predicted uh, at a time that the Yankees were actually might have picked them up, uh, even though fresh out of Boston. Because I'm like, with Matt Blake um, as the uh, um, pitching That's coach, dude who's known to tweak things, I, I almost wondered would, would Cashman pull something like that away from the Red Sox and um, use him to make some adjustments with that? But I, I was actually happy for the Mets when they got him. So I, I really don't think. Don't undervalue him, really. If you're a Mets fan, that's a dude who I think is might mean more than you initially might be thinking. I completely agree. I think this would be a good time to transition over to the Yankees, though. Um, so, okay. Scott, you want to get us started on some stuff that the Yankees uh, were doing this week? Yeah, so the obviously the... the the story of the day, the story of the week, the story of the past year of going on two years is the relentless injuries. But I want to start off with something uh, positive. Um, well, let's talk about the optimism shown by Clint Frazier. Um, he is, we already know he could, he could hit uh, quite well. Um, he is showing us he is a gamer right, right now, which is really, it's really happy for me to watch because I remember watching that game, and I think I was watching it um, with you, Billy. We were, we were doing one of these streams of watching um, that game against Boston where, where it seemed like um, his entire world just completely collapsed um, at, at his feet, and it was it was awful to watch. I did not like the way that fans treated him um, after that. I think that was a, a very unfair to treat him the, the way that you do because, in my opinion, you when you're a player – is doing something as terrible as him. The last thing you're going to want to do is boo him because that's going to take him, that's going to prevent him from getting into a good headspace at all. All you have to do is just not say anything. I think the amount of people who Yankee fans are rooting against him, um, I think that is a terrible way to go about how to find a way to support a a player on a team who's struggling. Now you and I, actually you came up with this idea, Billy. Um, You almost wondered if his fielding problems last year um, were results of a lingering concussion effect that somehow altered his death perception. And that made sense because when you look at his problems, they're, they're all related things that may be um, linked to the idea of placement and visual, like the idea of not knowing really when to dive or when not to. Well, he doesn't know when to dive and he dives at poor things because he can't tell the depth fully. Maybe that's why when it goes straight up in the air, that's why he's doing a tap dance because he can't see where it is and he takes the extra time to find it. And maybe also the third thing he never did was he wasn't really good at calling off Gardner in center field. Again, could he not perceive the depth of where Brett Gardner was? Um, so I almost can't help but wonder if you're correct on that. Um, 
he should have improved over this time. We see highlights of him in AAA catching the ball very, very well and making some very impressive catches. If you go back and look at some rail riders um, replays from last year, very impressive. And is this a result of the juiced baseball was just moving in weird ways? Was it a concussion thing? I don't know. But despite all that, that just makes it more worth it to see him having such a good start to spring training for so many different reasons. And I really hope that it becomes worth it to him. So I, I really am rooting for this guy. Well, I think part of it is, is you know, we talked about Diaz being young. So is Frazier. Frazier's young. Mm -hmm. And he's also a converted middle infielder. So I know I, I was a middle infielder myself, and playing outfield was a complete different mindset. And it, it's completely different in understanding how to track a ball out there. Um, so that takes time to get used to. So it, it could be a little bit of the concussion lingering symptoms like you guys are saying, but also it's just getting used to playing a different position. Um, this is a guy who came up, like I said, as a middle infielder. So how long does it take him to adjust? I don't know. I mean, we're going to see with Andujar this year. He's going to have to make adjustments as well, learning the outfield that he's going to see some time out there. So um, he's hitting very well right now so far this spring. Again, it's spring training, so you can't read too far into it, but he's made some adjustments with uh, his stance and his swing. Um, he was already a, a good hitter. Now it's going to make him even better. He's kind of got rid of the high leg kick and gone to kind of a timing step, lowered his hands a little bit um, to kind of keep a, a nice load going through. Um, so I'm excited for him. I, I think Yankee fans need to be a little bit more patient in general, not just with Frazier, but you know we're seeing it with Stanton now. I'm reading all this stuff on Twitter and all that. Fans going off about how they've given up on Stanton. Dude was an MVP a couple of years ago. Hit 57 home runs. I mean, come on. You can't give up on the guy. He's 30 years old. So um, I think as fans, we kind of need to st take a step back and say, you know what, especially in the case of Frazier, he's a young guy. He's trying to figure it out in a tough market in New York. I think he could be great for the New York Yankees. I think he wants to be great for the New York Yankees. Let's give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt. I completely agree. Um, I mean, I I think Frazier is incredibly talented. Um, I think he adapts well to um, pitchers. At least, I, I think he makes good adjustments when it comes to his hitting. Uh, but he he does have a little bit of that, like, overconfidence in a certain aspect. But then you see, like, his uh, lack of confidence then on the field at times. And I hope he's worked that out, honestly. Um, because no one wants to see that type of reception from fans. But you brought it up about the Stanton injury... Um, I just, like, I want to ask how you guys feel about this, because in the course of literally, like, two days, we saw two completely different reactions from Yankee fans. It was, you know, the the Stanton, oh my god, I'm done with this guy, like, I'm so sick of him, he's injured again, and he, you don't even know how much time he's going to miss. He might only miss a couple weeks, he might miss a month, like, you don't know. And then with Severino... Well, he's missed over he's missed almost two full seasons now. And you know he's not coming back till next year. But yet the receptions were very much more of get well soon, you know, um keep fighting, Sevy, like we look forward to having you back. And I I just think it's very like interesting how polar opposite the very similar situations were in that case. I have to take this one first because I am an unapologetic John Carlos Stanton fan. I absolutely 
Love the dude. He's probably my favorite Yankee on the roster for multiple reasons. If anyone would like to hear more about that, you can go to our YouTube channel. I actually have a whole video dedicated to why John Carlos is a great play- player, and I almost said John Carlos is a great flavor. Um, <laughs> he could be a great flavor. Who knows? <laughs> and, and, and why I absolutely totally dig this guy. But I, I can't say I am not yet annoyed with another injury. But he, here, here's the thing, though. Um, and I like how you make the comparison to Severino because I mean, that shows us one really important thing. But you have to keep in mind, um, John Carl is not far removed from his MVP year. 2018 is a damn good year for John Carl Stane. The Yankees do not win 100 games in 2018 if not for John Carl Stane in the middle of the summer. And that is a factor. No way you can convince me otherwise. Uh, because when Judge went down, um, John Carlo and Andrew are completely stepped on their game and, and carried. The, the the carriage that was the New York Yankees, um, like absolute war horses, and it was awesome. And that really shows the value of him. Here's the thing. The reason why you see that difference is because the Yankees, not just New York baseball, but the Yankees always, always need a villain. We have not had a villain in a while. The last villain who we've had was probably, and not even for long enough, was Robinson Cano. Before and after Cano was um, Alex Rodriguez because they both had two things attached to him, a lot, a lot of money. You hate A-Rod because he's making so much money and he doesn't well, perform yeah, up to that standard. You hate Cano because he – and you hate Cano – oh, yeah, and, and that too. But you – but what, what was one of the biggest things that people criticize A-Rod for? He always strikes out. He's not clutch. Um and then you look at Cano, he left for a lot of money. You see money is a common theme with creating a New York villain. Giancarlo is, he fits the bill for what the villain should be. But the problem is he's way too nice of a guy. And he's way too hard of a worker um, for him to truly be a villain. And that's why there's, there's almost this, he, I think Peter Rosenberg said it the best way on the Michael K show. He said he, he's good, but he has yet to have found his rhythm with the Yankees. He's also, the, the fans have yet to find their rhythm with him. Because you look at that contract, you look at that acquisition. Um, I will still contest that's a great acquisition because he gave up nothing for the reigning National League MVP. I would do that again if I, if I could. Um, but it's, it's a weird mix. There's something about him and the fan that the, the pieces are not quite fitting together, even though that they should. You know, like the Yankees complain that he's not spending a lot of money, but they did spend a lot of money on him. And then you don't want the money spent. Which one do you want? I don't well, exactly know the answer to this, but I feel like that we're trying to force the villain role onto him, but he really doesn't fit the bill when you really look at it. And as a result, there's just this weird mixture going on. I, I think the human nature is to react to fear more than anything else. And I think the fear of Yankee fans when they see Stanton is, here we go again because of all the problems we had with Ellsbury, right? Big contract, extended amount of time, seems to be injured all the time. I don't think Stanton and Ellsbury are the same player in any way, shape, or form. I, you know, Historically speaking, you look at quick offensive guys like a center fielders and middle infielders, if their legs start to go bad, like which is – what happened with Ellsbury, you lose them because you lose their game. Stanton's not a fast guy. Stanton's a big guy that's going to go mash the ball. Um, So it's different players. His injuries are a little bit different. I don't think we're going to have the same problems long-term. I think he's got to get a little more flexible. Um, That probably has something to do with it. He's a big, big dude. So, 
you know, I, I read something online today. Someone was like, oh, he should do the Tom Brady thing. And you know what? As much as I hate Tom Brady, that might not be a bad thing. Try to gain some flexibility and, you know, model that a little bit. But it's just the other part of this is the whole Stanton versus Seve thing is one's the contract that we traded for and one's the homegrown guy. So like Seve for Yankee fans, that that's our guy. He came up with us. He, he's one of us. Stanton, we we got him. We traded for him. He's He's not really – to the fa- average fan, I guess you would say, a true Yankee yet because they haven't really seen that side yet, where Seve's one of us. So I think that's why you get the contrast is versus the villain, like you're saying, with Stanton versus the, oh, you know, we love Seve, Seve get better. And let's not forget, the sta- Yankees training staff really botched the Seve thing last year. And maybe that's why a lot of them got, you know, let go. But Seve was complaining in October about having arm issues. So this is something that was ongoing, and now we get the spring training, and, oh, here we go, Tommy John. So, I mean, that's just something that could have been handled much, much better. And we we can't pretend – I love how you bring up the Yankees training staff. We can't pretend like Giancarlo is the only person this is all happening to. No. Look at at the past year. The amount of people who are consistently getting re-injured. Let's talk about that flexibility thing for a sec. Judge, Stan, and Luke Voigt, massive humans who lift very heavy, all three of them are always, always injured. And then, like you said, I like how you bring up the TV-12 thing that Tom Brady's on. It's it's proven to work that, that it's all about durability and withstanding impact as opposed to going against the impact or just using brute force. And even if anyone here is a WWE fan, they took a similar route with DDP yoga. A lot of wrestlers kept getting hurt over and over and over again. And then DDP was a former wrestler himself and a former heavyweight champion came up with his former yoga for wrestlers to use. And a lot of people with, with really, really bad injuries have, have come back, and, and they, they really credit that strategy. So this is two very high-impact sports that we are seeing take this strategy of durability over brute strength and finding a lot of success with it, giving players longevity. You can't help but wonder if Giancarlo, Judge, and Boy, or just baseball players in general can benefit from that. But getting off to, like, last year was, like, the, the record for the most DL trips, and we picked up exactly where we left off. I think Paxton, that's just a freak thing, having a cyst in your back. That's not that's not a sports-related thing. Been there, that's, been there. Yeah, it, it, but it, it, it's annoying Sevius keeps happening too. Judge has yet to have played a game. Remember, he was only supposed to miss batting practice for one day. It's been almost a week at this point. He still has not even played in a game, and we're not hearing much about him at all. Um, th- this is a problem, and it, it makes you wonder, like you said, Chris, is this is this still um, um, the poor job that was done by a training staff last year having lingering effects before the new system and the new staff before their systems can take their full effect? Is there still a lot of undoing from last year we still have to do? I definitely think that um, as as a person who watched the Mets training staff botch injury after injury back in the, like, early 2010s, um, we overhauled our entire training staff because of it. And knock on wood, like, it seems to have helped. And I don't know if it's just a coincidence, I don't know if it was the players are more injury prone than others, or if it's just, like, the staff, um, but our players seem to be more, um, more ready to deal with day-to-day baseball activity, and I'm not saying that that makes the Mets training staff better than the Yankees, it's just, it makes you wonder what's going on behind the scenes, and it's really hard to know regardless.
Well, and you're talking soft tissue stuff, right? You're talking quads, hamstrings, obliques. You know, that's the stuff that should be pre prevent preventable to a certain extent because you should be doing proper stretching and working to, for, for that stuff. You know, tearing an ACL because you go cut a base the wrong way, like, that's a freak thing. You know, stuff like that, that's just going to happen. Breaking a wrist in Aaron Judge because you get hit by a ball. Like, that's a freak thing. You can't control that stuff. But these soft tissue injuries that these guys keep having – I'm not saying they're soft or anything like that. It's just there's got to be a way to work towards helping fix that problem. Yeah, it's and and you know it's the most frustrating injury to hear about when you go, oh, so and so is gonna miss at least a week because of a, uh, you know, a lat or something like that. And it's like, it's like really like that's that's what you're missing a week for. And it's frustrating because it's like. You know, in your day-to-day -day lives, it's like, you go, oh, I pulled a muscle, but you still go to work. You know, like, it, it's annoying, and it bothers you, but you still go to work. And unfortunately, because of the nature of these athletes' jobs, they physically can't do the motions that we would typically do in a normal day. You know, they're putting a lot of strain on these muscles, a lot of torque, a lot of um, power moves through their bodies, and when you have those small like injuries that are just kind of like annoying to like an average person they become extremely painful for these guys and it's just frustrating as a fan because it's like you sit here and you go oh that's not that big a deal i had a pulled muscle like last week well it doesn't just go away you've just healed faster because it wasn't as bad as these guys now, here's the thing that I appreciate you, you saying, Billy, is the idea that it's difficult for the average person to put themselves in the shoes of someone who exerts force on their body for as their, their livelihood um, and in their career. But we do have a lot of kids who are really getting themselves into trouble with arm injuries, especially elbow injuries, and at a, at a young age, a lot of people might not know, uh, Tommy John is not for old people. Tommy John, a lot of teenagers are getting Tommy John, both willingly and because they, they need to. And, and Chris, I know you have a lot you have to say about that. So, so what can you say about Tommy John in relevance to, to kids and, and teenagers um, and for parents the things that everyone should know as far as how to prevent it and, and how to deal with it and where it comes from? Um, what information do you have for those kind of people? Well, so I, I guess it's kind of a lengthy discussion because there's so much involved with it as far as prevention, what causes it, all that. I, I'm not a medical professional in any way, shape, or form. I've just been lucky enough to coach youth sports for the past better part of a decade. And luckily, in you know 120 kids every year for the past decade, we've never had, knock on wood, any of our guys with a major arm injury like that. No, no tone irritators, no UCL injuries. Um, some of it is luck. Some of it is training. I mean, the fact is, you know, one of the big things out there right now is curveballs. You have a lot of people saying, oh, 12 year olds can throw curveballs. It's not the curveball itself isn't bad for your arm. Who cares? And a lot of people saying on the complete opposite side, well, they shouldn't throw any curveballs. I'm under the belief that the curveball itself isn't stress on the arm. The problem that causes the injuries for young kids is the lack of development and understanding in their in their motion of what they're throwing. Right. Because you take a fastball at a 12 year old kid and every delivery is different. every single one. They haven't perfected that motion. And that's kind of the problem you run into with the curveball per se is it's a different delivery every single time. So now you're taking underdeveloped muscles and teaching them to do something even more unnatural than a fastball. And that's where you run into problems. I had arm injuries when I was 14 years old. I popped my elbow when I was 14. And it's one of those things you never, ever forget. 
warming up in the fourth inning of a fall baseball game. Finished my five pitches the same way. Fastball, fastball, changeup, curveball, fastball to end it. I threw the curveball, felt something weird, came back with the fastball, it went about 40 feet, and my arm was done for a year. So I don't think it was necessarily the curveball that did it. I think it was a lack of understanding of how my motion plays into that and understanding that I have to have the same delivery every single time. Um, and that's, I think, what people kind of get away from. So if you're a parent watching this and your kid is a pitcher, it's not so much the curveball itself because you're going to have people going to say, oh, you can throw a curveball. I didn't have any issues. All it takes is one issue, right? And if you can tell me that your 12-year-old has the same pitching release mechanics every single time he throws a baseball, then okay, let him throw curveballs. But if you can't 100% say that, is it worth risking it for your child to know that if he does pop the elbow, he's never going to be the same again as an athlete? To me, no. That's why, you know, we don't do it. You know, we properly teach our kids. We have we have a, a basis of how we do it where when you turn 14, we start to develop it. And you can start to throw it a little bit in bullpens and stuff like that with a coach. And then, you know, 15, 16 years old, you we really start releasing it into a game because now you have a better understanding of your mechanics and we can talk to you a little bit more about it. So the curveball itself, I think, is part of the dynamic. The other part of this is is the whole throwing part. We have such an emphasis on pitch counts nowadays that kids aren't throwing enough. And that's weird to say because you're like, well, there's a pitch count, so they're, they're, they're throwing – 85, 105, whatever the pitch count is, how can they not be throwing enough? Well, the problem is, is because we go out there and we tell these 12-year-old kids that you have, say you're playing Little League Baseball, you have an 85-pitch pitch count, then you have to sit five days. Well, we got pro guys that in April aren't going out there and throwing 85 pitches the first week of the season. And then we're telling a 12-year-old that your first game, you're going to go throw 85 pitches because that's your pitch count. That's why I think where we're kind of lost in this generation of pitch counts is we're dictating exactly what the numbers say and not going away from that. Whereas instead of saying, you know what, I got to build this kid up. I got to get him to 40 pitches, throw some long toss, get him to 50 pitches and build kids up that way and extend the time that we throw as opposed to so much and so little time. Um, I think that's where we're running into these long-term injury issues with people is they're burning up their arms early because we're just going out there and we're just throwing them max effort all the time and then giving them the quote unquote listed rest that they need and then doing it all over again. I mean, I know when I was in Little League, it was the same thing. It was go out there, max effort. And even then, we didn't have pitch counts. It was an inning limit in Little League. So it was, you're going to be a starting pitcher. You're going out there. You're throwing six innings today, right? And then you take your five days off and you go do it again. And I think that's been kind of the long-term issue that we're seeing is for decades now we've been doing this. And now we're seeing the effects of that at the major league level. So. I and uh, really quick, Joe Girardi actually commented uh, just a few years ago when they were asking, um, and I believe it was his last season with the Yankees, 2017. They said um, some reporter asked him, well, "What is, um, what, what's the problem? Why, why, why are the Yankee pitchers, especially the younger ones, getting um, injuries?" He said, "They were injured when they got here. They're all coming up like this." And then they, they reach us and it's their breaking point. And it's funny because we see so much Tommy John injury. And then we also see this is the fastest average fastball like ever. And every year it just seems like more and more people can hit that triple digit of 100 miles an hour. When I was growing up, two people went that fast, Roger Clemens and Randy Johnson. Now it seems like every team's got like one guy or two. And, and it, it, it makes you wonder, years ago it used to be because I remember uh, growing up, 
you you do not throw a curveball until you're at least 16. Um, and as a result, I never learned the correct way to throw a curveball um, because they, they almost kind of like hit us from that. It's like, don't throw the curveball, don't throw the curveball, don't throw the curveball. I was not a pitcher. I just pitched once in a blue moon. So I was never uh, surrounded by someone who can um, – who is able to teach me the correct way to do it um, over and over again. And I think over time when I was like six, you know, like 17 or 18, I was teaching myself how to throw it, and I knew I was getting some arm problems um, from that. But now I actually attended a seminar not too long ago by a gentleman named, uh, I believe his name is David Johnson, and he is a sports physician. Uh, he works with the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Pittsburgh Pirates. And he said years ago it used to be the curveball was a problem. He said now the fastball is the problem because we're trying to get everyone to throw it as absolute fast as, as they can. And like I said before, we're seeing the fact that it is working. They are throwing faster. And Trevor Bauer recently actually defended um, – um, that that angle he's like oh yeah but we're also teaching it the safest way just anything athletic uh, in general is going to be um unsafe and has this risk but we're we're doing it the right way we can't just say stop doing that and then i believe uh was it paul Duca? some other former major league player kind of jumped in and he said but you see how many are getting injured at what point are we doing it the wrong way and at what point do we have to evaluate how this can be corrected especially at a young age because like Gerardi said they're coming up like that and they're just hitting their breaking point well how do you guys both feel about that well if i can jump in real yeah, quick go for it. You know. um, does major league baseball actually care that's that's kind of my question because like you have all these guys that throw 100 miles an hour right and if someone gets hurt you bring up another one so the longevity of it i don't think major league baseball necessarily cares or has to care is it the right move? I don't think so, because I'm I, I would want to look out for the best interest of the players. But from a business standpoint, well, you're not giving out long-term contracts to pitchers because they tend to be getting hurt. You're getting maximum effort out of them in a short amount of time, and they're easily replaceable because you have a bunch of guys behind them that can all throw 100 miles an hour. And the fact is, is the 100 miles an hour has proven to be effective versus the 95 miles an hour. So I don't think Major League Baseball necessarily cares. Is it a problem for us with youth and all that? Absolutely. You know, I see all these kids doing driveline and all that stuff that the pros do, and their muscles aren't ready for all that the weighted ball programs and stuff, but they're doing it because that's what the pros are doing. And I don't really think Major League Baseball cares because, like I said, they've got a whole mess of guys down in single A that throw triple digits. And you know what they know? In two years, they'll be up, and if someone blows out a UCL, we'll bring one of them in instead. So, yeah. So I have a couple things in in uh, response to all of that. You know, you look at you look at Japanese players, right? When they come over to the major leagues, especially pitchers, one of the big things that is such a big concern is the number of innings that they've thrown. You know, they they come over and they've thrown probably twice as many innings as a homegrown player from the United States because they don't they don't adhere to you know pitch counts and innings limits as much over there they throw and they throw and they throw and they throw and that's the philosophy over there i'm not saying it's wrong or right that's their philosophy but that's a big fear when these pitchers come over to the major leagues because they already have so much time spent throwing and then you have situations like otani recently where you have one of the biggest superstars to 
to burst on the scene in a few years and all of a sudden he's down for a year because his arm goes out it's unfortunate um and i think that's a testament to what uh you both were saying about the amount that youth uh youth players throw and uh how they're actually throwing you know they're, the Mets announcers, uh, Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, talk a lot about how you can have an easy 115 pitches, but a hard 90 pitches. You know, the game where you threw 115 might have been a, a lot easier for that pitcher to throw all those pitches than it was another game where they're only throwing 90. It's about stress pitches, and I think that's a that's a term that become has become a lot more relevant in recent years where they talk about well high leverage pitches you know how many pitches are you throwing out of the stretch versus the windup and you know all of these things factor into how much stress goes onto your arm and then it goes back into well how many injuries are we having and when you talk about them throwing more at younger ages and harder at younger ages well, how many of those pitches were high leverage pitches where they're overthrowing or, you know, not using the proper mechanics and then it becomes more of an injury waiting to happen than injury prevention. I think this is also why you're starting to see a lot of teams spend so much money on international free agents because they'll sign them at 16 and then push them all the way through their minor league system with the best coaches and the best training staffs to make sure that they're developing properly instead of, you know, a coach who doesn't care about um, developing properly but cares only about making sure that this team wins this game. And I think that's a that's another thing that it's like you balance that at a young age of, you know, trying to get this game where these kids care about winning and they want to win and they don't want to be pulled from these games. But also knowing that if I keep letting this kid pitch, he's going to hurt his arm. It's funny you say that because if you hear every once in a while, you hear a ding going on behind Scott. That's one of our kids in the back room pitching right now. And he's a kid that I took out of a game last summer because he was getting up there in pitches. and It was high-stress pitches like you're talking about, and he didn't want to come out. And I think that's what coaches fail to recognize on a, on a general level. Not all coaches, but on a general level is they fail to recognize those high-stress pitches and how how that really affects you. I mean, you go to the mound and you ask him, he, he could have thrown another 30 pitches. He felt fine. But you start understanding that aspect of it, of how many high-stress pitches he's thrown and you know the long-term effects that that could have on somebody. Is it really important to win this game today, no matter what it is? I mean, you could be talking about some Legion state championship game or a high school state championship game. Is, is that game really more important than this player's career? There's a balance between that, right? Because as a coach and a team, you obviously want to win the game, but you also have to understand how those long-term effects could happen. I mean, I've... I saw a coach last year in a 10U Memorial Day tournament pitch a 10-year-old for a complete game, and then he started him the next two innings of the next game. I don't, know, I don't know how many pitches that kid threw, but you can't tell me that throwing seven innings at 10 years old or eight innings or whatever it was right off the bat is a good idea. It's just you, you can't tell me that makes any sort of sense for that player long term. All it makes sense for is for the trophy that you want to put up with your name on it. So – 
Yeah, it's it's it, the balance. It's the balance of the of the wanting what's best for the player versus checking your own competitive nature to want to win. And I think that's the responsibility first and foremost of a coach is to make sure that in all situations you're not letting the emotions of the situation drive your decision making. And if you're a parent, you, you have a kid who's playing on multiple teams at once. I'm one of these kids. There was a point when I was uh, 13. How old are you in eighth grade? 13, right? Yeah. Um, yes. I played for three different teams in one spring. I played for my school team. I played for the Legion team. And I played for the local um, Babe Ruth team. Um, thankfully, I was not a pitcher. Uh, but at the time, I was a catcher. Um, and I was catching for all three of these teams. And I had, I had one, one coach who was um, one of my friend's fathers. And uh, Chris, you would know who, who this person is. I'm not going to say it on the air, though, um, just for the courtesy of that person. Um, had two sons who played. Um, but one of them was my age, one was a little bit older. And he made it very clear to me right off the bat. He said, you tell me what you're catching on those other teams because I am not going to put you in the catch unless I know you are not catching too much there because for every time the pitcher throws to you, that's a throw you have to make back to them. Um, there was also a, another person who was a pitcher and did the exact same thing as me, pitched for all three. Here's the difference. He and his parents didn't exactly keep track themselves of how much he, he was throwing. Um, he was probably the best pitcher in my age group from probably triple A ball all the way through all the way through high school. And then junior year, he walked in the pitchers and catchers. And I wasn't there because uh, by the time junior high school, I was an outfielder. Um, I was told what happened was he threw three pitches at pitchers and catchers, turned around the coach and said, I'm done. Um, and that was the last time he threw a baseball, as far as I know. Um, he was fried at that point. Um, way too much throwing. If you are a parent and your kid is playing in multiple places, please, please bring a notebook with you. Keep a log. Put something in your phone. Keep a record of it. Then show all of the coaches what you're throwing. Keep track of as many things as you can. And if one of those guys, one of those coaches says, I don't care, that's your cue to find another team to play for. Because that is someone who does not have your best interest in mind. And they kids are too young for adults to not have their best interest in mind. For sure. Because a kid, if he, if you go out there and you tell a kid to pitch, he's going to pitch. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to say no because he wants to play. He wants to, he wants to compete. And, and that's just the nature of it. That's what it's like being a kid. You'll just play and play and play and play. If someone tells you it's okay, you'll keep doing it. And, and that's where someone has to step in and be like, no, you can't do this anymore. Scott, you and I have a good friend that from college that um, when he was in high school, he was a pitcher. And he his team didn't really have the number of pitchers they should have when he was in high school. And so he pitched a lot more innings than he ever should have. And by the time we were in college, he could he could barely throw a football for you know a 20 minutes a half hour um you know just like throwing it around with like friends like after a while he would just be like all right i gotta stop because he just couldn't throw anymore and it, it, these are injuries that resulted from people not looking out for his well-being 
And he, he was a multi-sport athlete, athlete too. So the amount of stress that was going uh, through him, if you if you looked at that dude, he, what what great shape that dude's in. We we would play dodgeball, um, as for for, for rec sports. I, I remember. Then like halfway through a game, he's like, "Dude, I am totally toast." And just throwing dodgeballs, not even the playground balls, like the uh, the fun, the spongy ones. He was even having trouble uh, trouble throwing those after a while. Like think about how much damage that dude actually has on his arm. Chris, I can take you off. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I, I think the message to parents is keep track of what your kids are doing mm -hmm. and make sure you're in a program somewhere that is going to have the best interest of your kid at heart. Um, I think next week's topic, getting into how to select a program and who you want to play for, is going to cover a lot more of that. But you got to make sure you have your best interest of your kid is the number one priority. Um, don't go to a program based on winning or what they're going to promise you. Um, Find a program that's going to really keep the best interest of your kid at heart and, and talk to people and ask questions. I know as a coach, I want I, I want to field those questions. I want I want parents coming to me and saying, how do you handle X, Y and Z? I don't want to listen to the why isn't my kid playing shortstop question. But I want I want parents to come to me and say, hey, how do you handle your, your po pitchers post game? What do your pitchers do post game? Those are questions I love parents to ask. So if you're a parent, don't be afraid to ask those questions. No matter what the coach says about, I don't want to talk to parents because I know I say that. We have a preseason meeting every year with all of our kids and the parents and stuff, and I tell them, I don't want to talk to the parents. I want to talk to the kids. But that's not what I mean. I want those questions. I don't want the playing time questions. So any coach that says they don't want to talk to you at all shouldn't be worth your time. Don't be afraid to ask those questions on behalf of your kid because they're important. I think that might be um, a good place to start wrapping this up. I, I really don't think I could have said it much better myself. Scott, you got anything else tonight? That was a fantastic bookend that you put on that on that um, conversation. That, that was a great place to stop. And that was a great final lasting thoughts that we think our, our listeners um, should have. So we'll be back next week um, with another episode, and uh, we'll be discussing a few other topics as well as all of the news going on in the MLB. So for this week, we've been Before the Pitch. I'm Billy. I'm Scott. I'm Coach Chris. Hey, have a good night, everybody.